0: So, most of you know that I've been shamelessly stealing movie titles this Advent season to use as sermon titles, uh, not necessarily having anything to do with the movie itself, uh, but just the titles uh, sort of tying into different aspects of Christmas and the Advent season as we prepare to celebrate the birth of God's Son. And so... Today, we come to a a Christmas movie classic, Miracle on 34th Street, which really has little or nothing to do with Christmas, which most Christmas movies don't have anything to do with actual Christmas, right? They just have to do with the season of Christmas and the idea and the feelings of Christmas. Um, But in this film, if I recall correctly, uh, a little girl... Uh, her single mom, who's a busy uh, executive at, at like advertising for, I don't know Macy's or something like that. Um, <clears throat> the little girl wishes that her mom would fall in love with this man that that she's seen around, and she wishes that they would have a home, like a house, instead of a New York City apartment. I think, and those wishes come true. I think on Christmas Day. Is that right? <clears throat> What's that? <laughs> You've never seen it? Spoiler alert. All right. If you haven't seen Miracle on 34th Street, what are you doing? Where have you been? Who are you? Thank you. All right. And how can we trust you? That's just, you know. So what I want to talk about this morning is, so you have that miracle that's sort of associated with The season of Christmas, and I want to talk about the miracle of John's birth, uh, which is in preparation for the coming of Christ. And so, in order to sort of set this stage, we've already read part of this passage, and I'll just bring you up to speed on that. Uh, Zechariah was John the Baptist's father, he was in the temple, he was a Jewish priest. He was serving in the temple one day, and an angel appeared to him and kind of freaked him out, but the angel said, your wife, who is old, and he knew that, um, that was supposed to be funny, um, is is going to conceive and bear you a son. And Zechariah sort of, he's like, um, are you sure about that? And the angel says, just because you doubted me, I'm going to cause you to be unable to speak for the full term of your, son's, of your wife's pregnancy with your son. So he strikes him mute. John comes out of the temple flailing around trying to communicate what just happened. Everybody realizes that he's seen a vision, that something uh, incredible has just happened, and then he goes home to his wife, she conceives, and nine months later, we come to the scene where we are uh, in this passage. And so, John the Baptist uh, has just been born, and the excitement surrounding this in the little village where John, where Zechariah and Elizabeth live is sort of coming to a head. Everyone is, is excited, they, they don't really know what it means. But they know that a miracle has happened in their midst. And so there's much anticipation and excitement, and God's going to sort of intervene to begin to explain why he's done this. And so we get to look through that window today in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 57 through 80. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. "...laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David." Of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Have you ever seen? a miracle? I think for most of us, it probably depends on how you define a miracle. I've had the privilege of of being engaged in people's lives at some of their darkest hours, and In those times, I've seen a few cases where people who were uh, otherwise terminally ill uh, turned around completely with no medical explanation and went on to lead healthy, productive lives beyond that point. Most of the time, in those situations, you don't see a miracle. You, you see life come to its conclusion, and I should have said that differently. You, you don't see the miracle of, of full healing and restoration to life, but there are other miracles that are part of this stage of life that are much harder to define. The internal peace that comes to many at that stage of life. The clarity, the simplicity of what matters the most, those kinds of things emerge with uh, incredible brightness in in some cases. And I guess it depends on how you define a miracle. If, If it's some physical, supernatural change, then I would say I've, I've seen probably very few. If, on the other hand, we're talking about spiritual awakening, light shining into darkness, the human condition being changed supernaturally, then I'm part of a lot of miracles, and it's awesome. And this morning, we're going to talk about a miracle that God enacted or carried out just prior to the birth of His Son. And this birth of John the Baptist probably doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But think back. You know, God puts his fingerprints on history in various places. And when you see something like what happened to Elizabeth, you cannot help but look back to Sarah, Abraham's wife in the Old Testament, who could not conceive. And she took matters into her own hands at first and it's like, okay, God, if you're not going to give me a child, I'm going to go ahead and figure out a way to get one, and she had her servant uh, conceive with her husband, so she had, you know, this sort of uh, half-step son, or whatever you want to call it, Um, and God told Sarah in her old age, you will conceive a son yourself, and she laughed. She did, Um, you know, I think of uh, Hannah in the Old Testament, who also could not conceive, and God brought about a change, and she gave birth. And so, when you see this explanation of Elizabeth's condition, it, it should cause you to look and go, oh, this is the same God who has showed up in this same way at various critical stages in the life of his people. He's up to something again. And so, the miracle of John's birth is very much preparatory. Uh, It's sort of piquing the interest of God's people towards his supernatural intervention once again. And so, what are we to do with this miracle that's not actually the Christmas miracle, it's a few streets down, but nonetheless, something that is there to prepare our hearts for what God is up to, and let me just begin with this scene in the village where Zechariah and Elizabeth live as this older woman's son is born, and there's this great, every Jewish heart in that community would have been thinking about previous instances where God's fingerprints were impressed into history. And they would have been wondering, what does this mean? What is going on? And and so if we can sort of enter into that excitement and wonder with that community, then our, our search through this text begins with a call to enjoy the miracle of God's favor. This community is reminded here that God has not forgotten them, that his favor is still alive. His, there's hope. There's the presence and movement of God and the heart and life of his people again. And so, to enjoy this miracle of God's power, we need to rest in his mercy. The name John that was given to this baby means it sort of has a, a two possibilities as to its meaning and they're very closely related but one is god's mercy and the other connotation would be god's favor and so we see in just in the name of this miraculous child who is born the name that god gives to him you see god saying to his people god's favor is still alive his mercy is still real we are to celebrate his love, much as these villagers were in celebration over the birth of John to elderly Elizabeth. It was a miracle, and they all knew it, and they were happy for her, but they were even more excited that God was moving in their midst. And so, they celebrate God's love, and they claim his promises. Circumcision in the first century Jewish world was I cannot articulate how important this action was. This was a would have incorporated the entire village. Everyone would have been involved in some way or another. Uh, Yolanda would have brought cookies, and um, uh, it would have you know it was a celebration. It was a cause for joy. It was also a a time to remember and sort of recalculate. God's covenant, that, that we live under the covenant commitment of God to His people. And so, it's, it's beautifully appropriate that they come together to celebrate this. And so, it's, it's a claiming that action of circumcising a boy at the eighth day is, is sort of, you're claiming all of God's promises, not just over that child, but over the community as a whole. And it's a day of excitement and celebration. And so, we rest in God's mercy, and we hope in His power. The whole village is saying to themselves, if He can do this for her, what else is in store? We must open our minds to God's capability, to what He is capable of doing in this world today. And, the other thing that you see in this passage is the opening of the hearts of this whole community to God's potential. Their hearts were stirred, and their minds were open to wonder, what else is he up to? If he's doing this for us, what else is in store? And so, the call from this passage begins with that call to enjoy the simple miracle of God's favor on our lives. And then it moves to a call to enjoy the miracle of God's covenant, his commitment to his people that he has vowed to fulfill the terms of. And so we see this in this passage in several ways. We've already mentioned circumcision. Um, But this is a call, so let me just sort of try to set all of these positions in place for you. In the Old Testament, when Israel was in its fullest expression, there was was a king on the throne, there was a high priest in the temple, and there was a prophet at work amongst the people, forth telling God's love, God's truth, and, and a call, every prophet in, engaged in a call to repentance, for people to turn away from their sin and toward their God whose covenant love will provide atonement. And these three offices are, were all in play, in place, and in play in at the peak of ancient Israel's strength, if you will. By the time Zechariah is hanging around, uh, there was a period of time where the priesthood was no longer active. All of Israel was in exile. Their their king, um, I'm going to have to look, Zedekiah, last king of Judah, and he was taken by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, and he was blinded. His eyes were gouged out, I think. These were bad times, people. And he was carried off to Babylon in exile. So the king was humiliated, and he was taken from his throne. The priests... The temple was destroyed. The priests had no place to serve, and the only office that was still extant was that of prophet. And this is the time period of people like Daniel, for example, who, who prophesied in exile about the return, the restoration of hope. Well, at this point that Zechariah's wife becomes pregnant. There's there's not been a king in Israel in several hundred years. There's not been a prophet actively speaking and calling God's people to repentance in Israel for several hundred years. Um, I think Obadiah was the last one. Am I right there? Something like that. I'm close. I'm really close. If I'm not right, I'm close. But the prophet Obadiah was really the last voice uh, in, in the scriptures of a living prophet in within among the people of Israel calling them to repent and return to their their God and his covenant promises to them so think about this there's no king there's no prophet and here's Zechariah a priest and he gets to he's standing at the point in history where his son will be the first prophet in israel in hundreds of years the restoration of god's voice to his people is happening in front of his eyes and not only that but he also sees that the the one that his son is preparing the world for will be a descendant of david the king of israel That the kingdom will be, the the throne will be restored. The king of Israel will sit on his throne again. And Zechariah sees this and he's just stunned. It's like, I can't believe that I get to see this point in history where it, it all comes back in its fullness. And so here we are as Zechariah sees all this happening. And he reminds us to embrace our salvation. Verses 67 through 73 are a call to the salvation that will be provided through the Messiah. And this is a salvation as will be provided by God's Son according to how it was promised in God's Word. And Zechariah sees this, and think about that, that you have a priest saying that um, the the son of God, the king descended from David, will be restored to the throne and that the prophet, his son John, will be the voice to call people back to this covenant relationship with God. And so uh, this is a richly powerful moment in history that Zechariah gets to grasp and see. And so, as we embrace our salvation, we're called to engage our responsibility. You can see how he connects these two aspects of being living in covenant relationship with God. We are are given his grace and forgiveness through the gift of his son, and then there's a responsibility that he places upon us to carry that out into the world, that... um, to show the well, I'm sorry that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies verse 74 might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so Zechariah gets the the two-sided nature of the covenant. It's it's all by the grace of God. And we have a responsibility to live that out, to pay that forward, if you will, in our lives. And so we're to serve God without fear, knowing that you have been delivered. I cannot tell you how important this next statement is. You cannot mess up your relationship with God. you can mess up and you can do damage to your relationship with God and with others through your sin. We've all been there. We've all done this. But you cannot undo what Christ has done on the cross for you. It's impossible. And so you have the privilege of being able to serve God without fear there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the apostle Paul tells us. And so that means that I cannot manipulate you. I can try. But and if I do I hope what you say in your heart is That's funny. I'm forgiven. I'm claimed. He died for me, and I'm secure. There's nothing that anyone can do, including you, to undo what Christ has done for you. You are free to serve God without fear. Zechariah, a priest in Israel who is all about doing the sacrifices correctly, fulfilling the law, He gets this. He's like, wow. Even if I mess up my office of the priesthood, there is a priest who has come in the form of the Messiah who has already atoned for my sin on the cross. And so Zechariah sees it, he articulates it, he calls us to serve God without fear and to reflect God's character in the way we live. So we are to enjoy this miracle of God's favor, the miracle of God's covenant, and the miracle of God's peace. We are to walk in the confidence of our faith, knowing that it is our God who restores. As I mentioned earlier, Zechariah gets to see the turning point where all three offices in Israel will be restored and placed in one person, the person of Christ. He is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our king. And Zechariah is astonished at what he's seeing unfolding before him. But before the coming of the prophet, priest, and king, the office of prophet has to be restored to Israel, and that's what his son will do and so he sees this ministry of restoration and he knows that his god restores and he knows that we are forgiven we can walk in that confidence and we can walk in the light of life we are called to see the light of the sun the messiah Um, you can spell that one of two ways here, but Zechariah, in the midst of his prophecy, he quotes from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, which I shall read it to you, says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And every Jewish reader would have understood the messianic overtones of that passage. And Zechariah quotes it as he is uh, led by the Holy Spirit to articulate what God is doing in this moment. We are to see the prophecy of Christ in this passage. The coming of God's Son bursting forth of light into darkness. We are to see God's Son and we are to see God's way to restoration, to forgiveness, to healing. I want you to just look at some of the, the contrasts that are in these words. So, out of sin and death, we are to find the way through Christ into light and life. This is all done in fulfillment of God's Word. It is motivated by God's mercy, established in God's covenant. Forgiveness is promised in the covenant of grace. Righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is given to us in the covenant of grace. Life is promised to us in the covenant of grace, but it comes by the death of of Christ and so you have in these words a powerful articulation of what God is doing not just in John but through John to point us to the prophet priest and king of our faith my prayer is that you see him today and every day as we celebrate his birth will you pray with me God, our loving Father, we thank you for your word and that you are the God of fulfillment who extended your covenant promises to your people and then carried them out in Christ. Help us to see the truth of your Son, the power of his coming into this world and fulfilling your word. The ways in which He restored to us the offices of prophet, priest, and king, and in so doing restored to us the hope of light and life eternal. Thank You for that gift in which we live. Fill us with Your Holy Spirit and lead us to be the people who reflect Your character in the world around us. In Your Son's name we pray, amen.